0: Thank you and welcome uh, to another of our Fund Monitor's webinars. Today we're talking about private equity. Private equity has always seemed to be uh, the domain of the big end of town. There are some fantastic deals that we always hear about, but it's always for many hundreds of millions of dollars and it's always unobtainable for the normal investor. So the normal independent self-directed investor gets left really to mop up the pieces. They have the alternative investing in IPOs, which can be risky. Some can be great, but some can be risky. Or they have the opportunity to do angel investing with small-scale businesses or small-scale startups. Today, we're going to speak to Michael Tobin, who's an expert in the field of private equity, but who also, uh, from the Vantage uh, Private Equity Fund, gives investors the opportunity to invest alongside the big end of town. Michael, good afternoon. Thank you, Chris, good afternoon. First of all, can you just give us a very brief overview of what Vantage private equity does before we get into the the benefits of investing in private equity as opposed to, say, IPO startups or angel investing?
1: Sure. So Vantage was established in 2004 effectively to bring institutional-grade private equity to individual investors. I was formerly head of private equity at St. George Bank. We ran a um, $140 million fund-to-fund private equity portfolio that was essentially institutional money, so St. George balance sheet money, $50 million, and other industry super funds. And around that time, myself and my colleagues were looking for an opportunity where we could potentially participate on some of those strong returns that were coming through that portfolio to those institutional investors. And looking around the market, there was nothing really available for individual investors, you know, less than $5 million uh, to participate in this segment of private equity alongside the big institutions. So we actually stepped out, from Vantage in 2004 with the view to provide institutional grade access to individual investors, to the top tier of private equity fund returns in Australia. So that's effectively our business model. We've gone on to now raise more than $350 million across four of funds. We're raising fund four right now. Um, and the strategy effectively is to build a diversified portfolio of underlying private equity investments managed by the top tier private equity funds in the country and ultimately delivering a diversified private equity return to investors that is a global top quartile.
0: Okay, thanks, Michael, for that uh, overview. Can you just go into some of the benefits and the difficulties of private equity and some of the risks, Some of the advantages obviously are, uh, are of great interest, but also some of the risks?
1: Uh, look, I, I guess there's a number of different segments that people uh, uh, look at uh, or consider when investing in private equity. Obviously, there is the early stage private equity or venture capital type investments, and those investments tend to be into companies that are generally, you know, maybe pre-revenue or pre-earnings, so or they haven't really proven their products and services. And then there's like an early stage of private equity. These might be smaller companies that are looking to attract some angel investors or some smaller institutional investors to assist them with growth. And then there is what we call the lower mid-market segment of private equity. And these are effectively companies that have been around for a while, generally with proven products and services. They're generating earnings north of at least $5 million per year, sometimes up to $50 million a year. Um, but are looking to accelerate their growth. And so private equity comes in and assists them with that growth by providing equity capital, but also providing the expertise to assist them with growing a a company, you know, to three, four, five times its value in a two to four year timeframe. So as a result, the returns from private equity are quite strong. Um, Just to give an example, we've had four exits from our portfolios, exits being sales of portfolio companies in the last quarter. And the average gross return across those four investments or those four exits was 4.9 times return on invested capital, representing around a 74% per annum return on those investments. So the returns can be quite strong. Um, What we do to reduce the risk of investing in private equity is actually build a diversified portfolio. I think, as I mentioned before, each of our fund of funds builds a portfolio of up to 50 underlying company investments across a range of different strategies. So it's growth private equity, which is partnering with founders of, of uh, businesses or entrepreneurs to take their businesses to the next level. That'd be like 50-50 equity stake. It could be a buyout. So it might be a buyout of a, um, a, a division of a, a large listed corporate that has been unloved and, and providing the expertise to actually take that business to the next level. Or it could be a turnaround. Once again, the turnaround could be the parent hasn't provided the resources to that underlying company to help it to grow and the turnaround scenario is take that company private, bring in a new management team, provide the resources required to actually take it to the next level. So we build that diversified portfolio across a number of different companies, across a range of industry sectors and across a a range of managers to ultimately reduce the risk of an investment into private equity
0: when managed by Vantage. Private companies, Michael, are traditionally risky. I mean, I think, the failure rate of startup companies is something like 80 or 90% or startup um, businesses. So obviously trying to avoid that, I mean, whilst there are fantastic rewards to be had when you get something right, so, you know, you look at something that lists and it's an afterpay or whatever it may be, that's wonderful. But there's a lot of rocks and failures along the way. So what you're saying is that by going to that mid-market, You've got companies that are already established and have a track record, or have management in place, and it's a question of expanding the business rather than getting the business off the ground. That's correct, Chris. So we don't invest into those startups that, are, that have not proven
1: their, their products or services. Our managers are very selective about the companies they go into, and they always look at buying, you know, generally at a, a lower multiple to what obviously they're trading at on listed markets. Um, our managers are buying on average into companies at about a six to eight times multiple of earnings, whereas the comparable listed company might be trading at 12 to 15 times uh, multiple. And so that provides them with the opportunity to, as they grow the company, take the earnings to three times that size. They can then either sell that company onto the listed markets. They can uh, sell it to a listed um, trade player who may be trading itself at about 15 times multiple, or they can sell it to a larger institution or an offshore private equity fund who are happy to pay a larger multiple as well. So we really have structured a a product that removes the risk of investing in private equity. And I might just say across 140 investments that have been in our portfolios uh, since inception, we've had about three failures. And because we have on average about 50 underlying companies per fund, at investment, each company represents about 2% of the total portfolio. So if there's a failure, okay, 2% is written off. But when we're getting, you know, three, four, seven, eight times return on some other companies, it more than compensates for those losses that come through that portfolio. So we're very, very focused on risk mitigation and diversifying our strategy across those uh, sectors that I talked about before. Michael, who
0: does the due diligence? Because for investors wanting to invest in a private company and, and not whether they it's an area they like or they think that medical technology is going to be the next big thing. Who does the due diligence? It's difficult for private investors to really do due diligence on on private companies. Oh, most definitely. And that's
1: the thing. I mean, I think probably the riskiest way to invest in into private equity is to buy into one company that perhaps, you know, somebody that's running that company, um, and you buy equity in that business. That's extremely risky, because you're putting all your money to work in one deal. The next most risky method of investing in private equity is to buy into maybe one fund, or in particular, a new fund that has no track record or the manager has no track record in delivering consistent, strong returns to investors, that's high risk as well. Um, So what we focus on is investing only into the funds that have a significant amount of experience in already having proven that they can deliver value from investing into private equity. So often the managers that we invest into have already done 10, 12, 15 deals before and they've exited all of those deals and generated a strong return. Normally those returns are 30, 40, 50% per annum returns on their exits. Um, So we tend to invest only into, never the first time funds, only into the funds that have, uh, the managers have a significant amount of a track record. And often they've had more than 10, 15, sometimes 20 years of experience of investing in private equity. So they do the due diligence on the deals. They're focused on the particular, each manager will have a focus on a range of particular industry sectors where they've built up experience and they know a lot about what is it about the best performing companies in those industry sectors that make them so strong. And that's what they're looking for. So effectively, when an investor invests into one of our funds, they're buying into the top tier of due diligence in the world when our underlying private equity managers
0: are doing the DD on the underlying deals. So do you get to pick and choose within the deals or do you just invest in a certain number of funds who are investing in in a range of companies, whether it's four or six or eight companies or opportunities? Or can you pick and choose amongst those four, six or eight companies?
1: No. So our role is not to choose to cherry pick what we believe is the best companies. Our role is to pick the best fund managers in the country in private equity and invest with them knowing that they will pick the best companies to invest into. So yes, we don't cherry pick the deals out of that. We may on occasion put a little bit more into a co-investment alongside one of our underlying managers, but we have restrictions on how much we can put into any one of those deals as well. We might do a co-investment with a manager who's in one of our previous funds, but the current fund may not have an investment with that manager, in which case we will get a piece into a co-investment that'll be roughly the same size as any other underlying company in our portfolio. So on those occasions, yes, we will conduct uh, additional DD, but generally we get access to, in those situations, we get access to all the DD information that the underlying manager has accumulated when it comes to making a decision for an investment into that uh, company. And that, that could come down to having an external McKinsey consultant's report on the industry sector or the market that the, the company is operating within to see you know, what's the attractiveness of that market. It obviously includes the legal due diligence and the accounting due diligence and, um, and a lot of other uh, aspects of the DD that is undertaken by the managers, uh, which they spend a significant amount
0: of time before they actually undertake a deal within, in, into any of those companies. So one of the benefits is the opportunity. One of the benefits is someone else is doing all the hard work. Um, so I can certainly see the attraction of that. Um, diversification is obviously a significant um, benefit in that diversification reduces your risk. But to what extent, you know, how many deals are there in the Australian market and are you only dealing in the Australian market? On any one year, how many sort of private equity, mid-market deals are there going around? Look,
1: when it comes to how many are going around, I don't know the actual number. When it comes to the opportunities within this lower mid market segment, they are quite extensive. There has been a number of reports put together by PwC, Pitcher Partners, Grant Thornton, et cetera, about the generational change of ownership of uh, private companies. Um, In this segment of private equity, the numbers that PwC are reporting are something like 5,000 private companies in the lower mid market segment of Australia. That's companies of enterprise value, $25 million through to about $250 million. 5,000 companies are looking to transition ownership in the next five years. So that's a lot of companies that, are, that the private equity funds can look at to see whether it will fit their criteria to, to becoming an investment for them to, to come into their portfolio where they can assist to, to grow their company. So there's certainly a lot of opportunities in the space. And across each of our uh, funder funds what we see is really a deal rate because we have commitments across around seven underlying funds to each of our underlying three draft under funds we're getting um, often uh, you know a deal rate of around 10 new acquisitions per year and when it comes to divesting the portfolio we're getting around 10 per year as well in fact across our portfolios we've had around 12 exits since November last year um, so that's been a quite a high, Rate of exits. And that's normally the private equity model, spend a bit of time investing into the companies, building up those companies across a two to four year timeframe, and then exit those companies. So as an investor comes into our fund, our portfolio will grow over time. Uh, currently within our VPEG four, I think we've got about six companies um, that will grow ultimately to about 50 companies at a rate of about 10 companies per year. But we'll start to see some exits coming from that portfolio, and hopefully getting those two, three, four times return Um, which we've been historically getting across all our funds
0: um, and delivering distributions back to investors. So, Michael, one of the disadvantages or one of the issues with private equity has always been liquidity. If I've got the choice of investing in an IPO, I could, you know, make 100%, I could make um, a, a, a negative return, but at least I have the liquidity of the market. So that's a big benefit. Liquidity in private equity is very different, but you're mentioning a series of equi- exits. So what, what's the average length of investment that you're making? So from actually investing in one of these small to mid-market companies through to exiting them?
1: Yes, across our funds, uh, two and three um, and four, we we've seeing an average hold period of about three years. So some of the exits that we've had recently have been about uh, two and a half years. Some have been up to four years. So on average, we're saying about a three-year hold period. Um, you mentioned the liquidity. Often, obviously, bigger institutional investors when they're buying in private equity have a longer-term investment time timeframe. Um, but what we actually have provided investors with our VPEG-4, and it's also a case of our vp 3 provide the ability to redeem after a minimum four-year hold. So investors can hold for four years and then redeem it anytime thereafter if they want to otherwise they can stay in the portfolio and continue to get the 20% per annum plus returns that they
0: were getting uh, for the first four years so obviously much less volatile returns probably better returns than the market but the downside if there is a downside to that is you've got to be prepared to stick your money in and stay with it um, so in that way it's more like a property investment which unless you're really lucky you're not going to turn property over in 12 or 24 months, it's more of a buy and hold. So you'd take the same approach to private equity?
1: Yeah, definitely. Look, it's obviously not going to be 100% of anybody's portfolio um, and it really comes down to the age of the person that's investing in it. And, you know, obviously Australia has a a compulsory um, superannuation regime. Um, So as you know, the larger superannuation funds, the Future Fund, Australian Super, CBUS, MTAA, et cetera, they all have a, you know, relatively, you know, a good sized proportion of their portfolio in private equity, somewhere between uh, 15% for future fund up to 20% plus for some of the other industry funds. So what we often see from investors that come into our portfolio is uh, traditionally before they've invested in private equity, they might have 100% in in listed stocks, property and potentially some bonds um, and virtually nothing in private equity. So they start to, you know, put a proportion of their portfolio into private equity that they don't need the liquidity from. Um, you know, speaking from my own perspective, you know, I'm not looking to retire for another ten years. Uh, I'm comfortable to put virtually all my money into private equity because, you know, I don't need that liquidity ongoing. I'm still working, um, and I have enough liquidity from my salary coming through. And so that works out for a lot of our investors. Um, a lot of business owners participate in our fund who are getting, you know, good cash flows off their businesses. Um, and don't necessarily need the liquidity, but they want to build a nest egg for later on in life or through this self-made super fund where they can't touch the the money until a certain age anyway. Um, So you know that's the kind of profile that it fits for those types of investors that are happy to put a portion of their investment portfolio in. Obviously adding private equity to a balanced portfolio enhances the efficiency and performance of that portfolio because it has a low correlation to public equity bonds and property. But it actually has a better return than public equity bonds and property. So it's a lower, lower de- uh, low correlation. It has a low standard deviation, so low volatility. So adding it to a balanced portfolio actually enhances the returns of
0: that portfolio. Michael, can you give us some examples of companies that either you're investing, you obviously invest in, in funds, so you're a fund of funds, but the underlying companies, uh, either some of the examples of Funds that of companies that you're presently invested in, or examples of companies that you've recently exited. Yeah, sure. Look, I'll give a good example.
1: It's uh, quite a recent um, exit from our portfolio, which is from our fund three. Um, this is uh, Silk Laser Clinics, um, listed on the stock exchange in uh, on the fifteenth of December, twenty twenty. So, Silk Laser Clinics is a um, Uh, a a business that provides, what do they call it, non-surgical aesthetics. So this is uh, skin laser or laser treatment of skin, so laser hair removal, Botox, fillers, uh, and a a bunch of other sort of uh, treatments that are undertaken by nurses in clinics. Um, uh, Our underlying manager, Advent, invested into this business in January, 2018, when the business had 12 clinics operating in regional South Australia and Western Australia, and across the period from January 18 to December 2020, they exi- they invested sig- uh, a significant amount of money to grow that business from 12 clinics to over 50 clinics when it came to exit. That business grew by not only uh, growing clinics organically in partnership with the clinic owners, but also acquiring another business called the Laser Lounge, which added a number of clinics to it. Um, they, so that business grew its uh, earnings over that period of time uh, from around $4 million to $28 million at exit and grew its revenue from around $13 million to $60 million at exit. So a strong uplift. When it lists on the stock exchange, the IPO price, that represented a roughly four times return on invested capital uh, sort of a, a, across that sort of two and a half year time frame and that represented a 70% per annum return uh, for our investors. Uh, so that's a good example of where the private equity team, you know, came in and added significant value to that business to grow it across Australia. Is there an equivalent business for old men with grey hair, Michael, out there? I think you can go there and
0: um, get some laser treatment to remove that hair, Chris. I don't <laughs> I want to <laughs> remove it, Michael. Then you can I get a wig. I just want to change the colour of it without turning copper. Anyway, um, let's have have another example of it. I think you were invested in message media recently.
1: Uh, Yeah, so message media It's obviously been reported in the press. I think it's uh, been reported as being the second or third largest tech business uh, ever sold in in Australia. So that was an investment from our fund two and our fund three via Mercury into message media. They ultimately um, acquired 50% of the interest in message media. Uh, across those two funds, which we have a, a proportion of. Um, and that was sold uh, just recently to cinch a Nasdaq, uh, Swedish Nasdaq listed technology firm, a multi-billion dollar firm for 1.7 billion Australian dollars. I think it was 1.3 billion US dollars was the headline number. Um, and so that obviously delivered a significant um, uplift uh, for our portfolio. So the Mercury investment came in in two tranches. Uh, from their fund two and their fund three Um, obviously the first tranche was when the business was australian centric the second tranche of money came in to actually take that business up into asia and into the us and, and into europe and by making a number of other acquisitions of businesses that were providing a similar solution which is the text messaging for uh, you know, When you, you might have a hair appointment, Chris, and, and you, you, you forgot that it's uh, at 5.30 this afternoon, you will get a text an hour before that hair appointment letting you know that you've got that. So um, that business has grown ex- exceptionally strong uh, across that whole period and delivered a, a very, very strong return on investment to Mercury and our funds. And we expect to deliver uh, that as a distribution to our investors in the second half of this year.
0: Michael, you're now on a uh, Vantage Private Equity 4. Just looking back over the years from VPG 1 through 2, 3 and 4, have you noticed much change in the market, uh, in the style of the market or the way you go about it? Or is it just a series of opportunities?
1: Uh, look, I, I think what we've observed over that period of time is the private equity managers have become much more sophisticated. Uh, they, they um, have a lot more experience than what they did when we first started investing, you know, at St George's days. So I think when we are at St George, there were a number of emerging managers, some being spun out of some banks. Um, when I say emerging, they, were, they had a track record, but it may have been a more generalist track record. It might have been more opportunistic. What we're we finding now is our managers are much more specialist. You know, there'll be managers that only focus on growth private equity, that every deal they do, will be a 50-50 equity investment alongside the founders or entrepreneurs that sort of started that business 10, 15, 20 years ago. So really assisting those businesses, backing the, the, the current founders of the business with additional um, expertise to take it through the next level. Then we'll have those that are focused just 100% on buyer. And they are you know, very, very experienced in structuring deals to protect on the downside. So um, they stru- structure those deals with preference shares and a whole range of other bells and whistles to ensure that they never lose um, their initial investment into those, those um, investments and ultimately looking at least for a minimum 15% per annum return on those investments, even if everything sort of fails. Um, but on the upside, uh, when those businesses start to perform well, they're actually getting good return. And then we see specialists that are focused more on industry sectors. So we have some, some specialist fund managers that are really sort of focused on healthcare, technology, uh, consumer sort of segments. And uh, that, that's naming three different managers that we invest with. So we're really backing those managers into their funds that have that expertise that they've developed over the past sort of 15, 20 years plus of investing in private equity.
0: And just one last bit, because I think we're running out towards the end of time, but looking forward, do you see any changes? You've obviously seen uh, changes over the past four or five years. Where do you see the market or the industry or the sector going over the next two or three years? Uh, Look, it's quite
1: interesting. I think uh, obviously ESG is playing a big part in a lot of our funds approach to investment right now. so we'll see that there'll be a lot more focus on ESG, carbon neutrality uh, across the underlying investments. Um, we are seeing new types of investments coming into our call, portfolio that we would would not have expected or would not have envisaged, you know, a number of years ago. Um, I think back in our fund one, there was an investment which was a roll-up of IVF services businesses and became Australia's first um, IVF um, listed company. Um, and uh, that was, you know, quite unique in our portfolio for our Fund 1. What we're seeing in our Fund 4, we've got a company called Climate Friendly, which is a consulting business to large landholders on um, capturing carbon and, and how to actually improve their land to capture more carbon and, and get generate carbon credits, which are then sold into the, um, uh, the market for carbon credits, uh, which are uh, ultimately being purchased by the large oil and gas producers. So... That consultancy is structured an arrangement where not only do they get a consulting fee, but they get 25% of the carbon credits that are generated from each of those uh, landholders each year. So that business is quite unique in its um, financial model, but also in its approach to um, you know improving the efficiency of businesses um, when it comes to being carbon neutral.
0: So generally speaking, we seem to be talking about the growth areas and growth businesses. There's Been a lot of talk over the past six, 12 months about the rotation in the market between value and growth and growth and value. But it sounds to me as if you're you're focusing or just by its very nature, private equity looks at growth businesses rather than traditional value businesses. Uh, look, uh, yeah, just, just to sort of clarify that, what they do look
1: for is not high growth businesses. If there's a high growth business that is like, not profitable at this point in time, then it's probably not going to be you know, suitable for private equity. Those types of businesses become listed businesses straight away, as you see with Afterpay and, and companies such as that. So you, you might see some so-called old economy businesses coming into our portfolio, but they'll come into our portfolio where they've been poorly run, and there's an opportunity to turn those businesses around to become world's best practice uh, deliverers of earnings of their, their industry sector. So we've got a We've got a company in our portfolio, it's it's, it's an old world business, it's a a transport business, refrigerated transport of logistics um, of food up and down the East Coast of Australia. Um, And it's got, uh, I think it's got 500 trucks, 1,000 trailers, you know, more than $300 million worth of hard assets in that business. Um, Our manager was able to pick that up at a discount to the the actual uh, value of the assets. Um, That business was uh, somewhat poorly run, still profitable. But given the amount of revenue it was generating, its earnings could, could have easily been double or triple what they were based on world's best practice benchmarks. And so our manager has gone into that business with 100 projects to, to, to uh, implement over 100 days to actually grow the earnings of that business because it you know, there's a lot of inefficiencies in there. So we have a combination of, let's say, growth businesses, which could be you know, technology, profitable technology companies that are, that are growing fast, that have a high um, gross margin, and a high profit ratio to earnings uh, to to revenue, and then we have a combo, uh, you know, some of those let's call, call them old world businesses that are hard hard in assets, but have the opportunity to to uh, turn around those businesses to generate a strong return
0: still for investors. Thanks, Michael uh, Damon, I think we're just about up to our
2: half hour that you indicated would be at. Um, are there any questions? Uh, first and foremost, uh, Michael, a question on how PE does in poor markets. I guess we've had some reasonably poor markets over the last um, uh, three years, particularly in Australian equities, and some very good ones. Um, you mentioned it's undercorrelated, but how, how does it perform in, in poor markets?
1: Yeah, look, the beauty of private equity, Damon, is that, um, you know, then are not needing to sell their portfolio companies in poor markets. So what we normally find is in poor markets, such as, you know, when the markets, the ASX dipped in uh, March and, and we had that initial lockdown across uh, Australia for COVID, um, there was a period where a number of our managers had already negotiated to buy into some portfolio companies. They used that opportunity of the poor market to actually renegotiate the purchase price into those companies. And we saw across the board, they were able to renegotiate prices that were somewhere between 20 to 50% less than what they had struck uh, pre uh, that sort of COVID scenario. So they usually, the managers usually utilise the period of poor markets to acquire companies because it, it tends to lead to a bit of distress. You see listed companies wanting to, you know, offload companies, they need some cash, they want to sell them and often, often it becomes a, a, an opportune time to buy portfolio companies. And then as we've seen over the past, I guess, uh, you know, so eight to 12 months or eight to 10 months, and the markets have been quite strong so our managers see this as an opportunity to exit their portfolio of in of investments especially those companies that are ready to exit that have reached their achieved their investment thesis they've grown their earnings 3 to 5 times what it was at initial investment and um, they're ready to be, to either list be listed or sold to a larger player and so that's what we've seen so that it's it's not that they and that's the beauty of private equity. It's not having to sell into poor markets. It's buying in poor markets and it's selling in strong markets. And, and you know, I guess it's the old adage of buy low, sell high.
2: Michael, we've got a question just here regarding the fee structure. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what the fee structure is for the offer um, you know, and how those fees are, are rolled out? And, and maybe just talk a little bit about um, the offer for VPEG 4 at the moment?
1: Yeah, so the offer we have for AFM subscribers is effectively a minimum $50,000 investment, which, if the subscriber wants, uh, can be called progressively over time. We've called 15% from investors to date. Uh, ultimately, that calling of capital over time would be in 5 to 10% increments and on average about 25% per year. So you can actually keep your uncalled capital invested in other liquid investments during that period of time. And as the capital is called in it's invested directly into the private equity investments and then as the exits are occurring you're getting the distributions back so there's that option of being a progressive call investor or if you want you can actually pay 100 up front so that's $50,000 minimum to participate Um, the fees to to participate in the fund are not charged to the investor it's charged out of the fund so investors actually receive the full um, allocation uh, for what they want to invest um, and very low management fee of 1.25% per annum on committed capital for the first four years and then it's on invested capital thereafter. And then we have a very um, competitive performance fee structure, which is 15%, sorry, a 10% gain above a 15% per annum net return to investor on a whole of fund basis. So investors get all their um, initial capital back, 15% per annum return on that capital, and then we, our team shares in the upside, ten percent to the to Vantage and and ninety percent to the investor. So that's uh, extremely competitive in the market when most of our competitors are charging twenty percent over an eight percent hurdle, um, and some of them on a deal by deal basis. So ours is on a whole fund basis, which is extremely fair. Our interests are aligned with all our investors. Uh,
2: Michael, also um, just to sort of stress, you mentioned earlier that you it's it's an Australian fund, are all of the deals based in Australia? Sorry, I missed that, with what? Are all of the deals based in Australia? Are there some odd uh, overseas uh, company held within some of these underlying managers?
1: Right. So all of the funds that we invest into are Australian domicile, but some of those funds do invest into some New Zealand companies. So what we find across our portfolio, we have around 10% of each of our portfolios invested in New Zealand companies. And that tends to be... New Zealand companies that have a a very strong management team, a very strong platform for growth, and the opportunity to expand that business or that company and its products and services from New Zealand into Australia and beyond. So that tends to be why uh, those companies come into one of our portfolio um, uh, of investments.
2: Uh, I love this question. Um, Someone's asked, having heard quite a lot of success stories, Uh, What's the worst investment and what was the effect on the fund of funds um, as a result of that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So our fund one invested in a company called Billy Hyde Music Group, which was a corner shop retailer of musical equipment, Um, and they invested into that company pre-GFC. The strategy was to turn that into a a big box retailer of musical equipment by um, taking on large leases of large spaces and buying a lot of equipment to fill those spaces and hoping that a lot more people would buy the drums and guitars, et cetera, as as opposed to um, from a a corner shop. Um, Unfortunately, GFC hit. Um, Individuals stopped uh, discretionary spend to a degree, Um, didn't buy the guitars and and drum kits. And um, unfortunately that company had a, a fair bit of debt and was put into administration um, and receivership so uh we lost 100 percent of our investment in that fund sorry in that company um but as i said our fund one had about 50 underlying companies in it that was one company it represented two percent of our total investment portfolio at that time so it represented about one and a half million dollars of our funds money into that deal um and i might just say six months after that um investment failed we had another company, our portfolio, with roughly the same amount of money, $1.5 million, but listed on the stock exchange. It was a cover more travel insurance, and we got five times our money. So across those two deals, we got two and a half times. So you know, across our portfolio of 140 companies, we've had about uh, three failures uh, to date, um, and you know, failures being a total wipeout of the initial capital that we invested in those companies. But given that the rest of the companies across the portfolio are generating three, four, five times return, It more than offsets those uh, losses across the portfolio. So hence the beauty of the diversified approach that we have to investing in private equity.
2: And uh, one uh, final question. Someone's just asked um, a little bit about the financial returns for the years that the funds have been in existence. How how have they performed? Yeah, sure. So
1: uh, our Fund 2, which was uh, first established in 2014, as of 31 March, has generated a 19.95% per annum net return to investors after all fees. Uh, and our fund three, which was first established in 2017, started investing in 2017, um, it's sitting on a 21.6% per annum net return to investors and that's after all fees as well. So yeah, th- look, we've hit our target returns across both of those funds. We expect the performance of both those funds to improve in the June quarter as we get the June valuations through, because as I mentioned before, we've had four exits across the portfolio that have delivered close to five times return on invested capital. So as those valuations flow into the June valuations, we expect those um, uh, net returns to investors on a per annum basis since inception to improve.
2: Okay, Chris, uh, one last question, or I should say, uh, Michael, one last question. With IPO markets cooling, how does that affect the ability for managers to realise their investments?
1: Yeah, so there's three methods by which our underlying funds sell their companies, and that comes down to obviously an IPO. We've seen a couple of those. Uh, recently. So Silk was listed. Uh, we had Lynch, uh, Lynch Group, which is a wholesaler of flowers listed. We've got Best and Less that'll be listing on the market uh, in, in July. Um, so across the you know 11 investments we've had exit across that period of time since November, uh, there's only really three that have been um, exited via an IPO. So the other method that um, our managers normally sell by is to a trade sale Uh, to somebody within the industry sector, and that could be a a listed or unlisted Australian or global player. Um, And so a lot of the other exits from our portfolio have been trade sales or trade purchases by an offshore party. I guess the Message Media example I gave before is a good example of a trade sale. And then, of course, there's an opportunity to sell to a larger private equity fund. So the larger funds, which are generally dominated by the offshore funds, you know, the KKR, TPG, Carlisle, Bain, um, and perhaps locally, PEP and um, BGH, um, tend to buy into bigger deals or looking for opportunities, especially the offshore funds are looking for opportunities where they can actually take a business that's got a foothold into uh, a US market or an Asian market or a European market and actually expand it in those markets further. Um, and those, those funds tend to pay a little bit higher multiples, um, so there's an opportunity to sell those companies to those funds as well. So there's three methods that we sell by. So when we see the IPO window shuts, then the bulk of the exits come via trade sales and secondary sales to either a larger private equity fund or an institutional investor, which we've also had some sales to offshore institutional investors as well.
2: And one last one, Uh, the VPEG 4 is available at the moment. What's the target um, for size for that fund? And and, uh, when does that deal or offer finish?
1: Yeah, so the target size is 100 million, and um, we're sitting at 95 million as at today's date. Um, so we will accept over subscriptions to probably around 110, 120. Um, and we have a final close date of 30 September
0: for this fund. Excellent. Um, Chris, I'll pass it back to you. Okay, thanks, Damon. Um, Michael, thank you. Is there any other points you want to make? I think you've covered uh, pretty much everything. You've certainly given a great rap for the fund and for the sector. Uh, so I'd like to thank you for that. But have you got any sort of final comments that you'd like to leave with?
1: <laughs> well, thank you, Chris, for leaving that open for me. Um, look, at
0: the end of the day,
1: it's an opportunity to invest in the private equity asset class that most individuals don't get access to um, it's, a, it's an investment that from an investor's perspective is quite passive, but from, the, uh, from our perspective and for the underlying managers that we invest into, it's extremely active. So it's very hands-on by our underlying managers to, to grow the value of their underlying portfolio. So it's not, a, not buying into a listed company which, which doesn't have that additional focus of a, of a, uh, a private equity fund manager to, to grow it across that short timeframe. Um, so that's the beauty of private equity. Our managers are all focused on delivering that return in a you know, two- to four-year time frame for every investment as opposed to buying and holding for a long-term. So um, when you see a, a company listed on the stock exchange, Silk listed, um, it's gone up, I think, 30 40% since it's listed. But, you know, uh, you would like to get access to the, you know, four, 400% growth that it had prior to listing. And this is what uh, we provide to investors, that opportunity to get that, substantial growth in, in uh, the value of a company prior to it get it getting onto the list of markets
0: Michael thank you very much indeed it's been a pleasure talking to you I hope everyone's found it interesting and if they have any other further questions they can certainly come back to us or I'm sure contact Michael directly
1: thank, thank you Michael
0: to you and your team thank you very much Chris
1: and
2: thank you very everybody for uh, joining the uh, seminar today